Yo, what's going on, people? Welcome to what is now season two of the 195 Stamps Podcast, the travel podcast that you deserve. Um, so things have happened since the last time we talked. A couple of things have happened. Um, global pandemic may may not have heard. Uh, crippling economies globally, uh, particularly ours here in America. Um, not too much travel. Not, not a lot. Um, and it doesn't look like it's going to be any for quite a while, but we'll get to that. Talking about travel. Um, we'll talk about everything else that's happening in the world. Um, and also what it'll look like once we come out of this. All right. So I was debating on whether to do a podcast, what to say, um, how to say it. Because, you know, there, there's there's so much going on. It's a lot happening in the world right now. I wasn't sure if, you know, a podcast about travel, something that I enjoy, most people enjoy. And, and on here, you know, I like to keep it casual. I like to keep it light. I like to keep it fun. But there isn't a, a damn thing casual, light, or, or fun going on today in America. I mean, we have a... We're in the throes of a global pandemic that is disproportionately affecting people in black communities um, a lot worse. Uh, we also have a government that has not taken any significant measurable response um, in combating this. And on top of that, we have, you know, a healthcare system that's been overwhelmed. And I understand that our first responders and people on the front line are doing the best they can. And, you know, we commend and applaud them for that. But, you know, just the facts are the facts. We don't have a viable, sustainable treatment, nor do we have a vaccine. Um, Now, the sustainable treatment, I don't know. I'm no scientist. I'm no virologist. Virologist? Pretty sure that's how you say it. I'm not a doctor of that. So I don't know if that uh, will come. We know that a vaccine, the earliest they're saying that that guy Fauci was saying is, you know, first quarter next year. But I mean, are we really going to hold them to that? And and, and what's going to happen? So we've got that, you know, mixed with protests globally, all over the world, all 50 states, a whole bunch of countries. And, you know, I'm glad to see everyone is out there. I'm glad that. People are finally saying, nah, I'm tired of this shit, but the shit shouldn't be happening in the first place. And, and, and that's what made me so hesitant to even, you know, start uh, a season two right now. Um, because of course, you know, the the travel is, is, is one thing, but you know, there's just so much going on that you know, is this, this right? I was trying to rebrand and I was like, you know, what am I going to talk about? Um, especially since we can't go anywhere. We're all uh, trapped at home. Um, but that's secondary, you know, 
just in the past, what, six weeks? Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, right? And, and you know, I live in Georgia, and the Ahmaud Arbery thing down in South Georgia was was heartbreaking because, you know, I look at something like that, a guy who, strolling through the neighborhood, goes from the video, we don't know if it's him or not, but they're trying to say that he went into an unfinished house, which... People do literally all the time. I live on a block that is currently, they're trying to gentrify it. It's not quite working how they thought it would, but they're trying. And about three or four houses on my street right now at the recording of this podcast are being worked on. Do you know how many times people like when the frame was just up or, you know, when they had the, uh, just to kind of the drywall up, you know, other investors, not even just people in the neighborhood, other investors, would ride by stop and just go and peek in the windows. And these are white and black people, Asian is all colors, all races. And I live across the street from one. I haven't gone and peeked in there just because I, I haven't, but definitely I was like, Oh, when they get done, I'm going to go walk around and, and check it out because the landscaping looks nice. And that's a death sentence in the eyes of some people. And that, is grounds for you to have to comply with some random white guys that pull up in a truck and tell you that you fit the description and chase you and corner you and kill you and not get arrested. That is that's sanctioned from the state. That's indirectly, not even indirectly that's directly related to them being able to work for the state of Georgia as agents of the police and having that privilege extended to them as private citizens to go out, hunt, and kill someone for what they think is a crime. And that hurts, man. Like, you know, people that don't live in the state, right? We see Atlanta as, we see Georgia as Atlanta, if that makes any sense. I, I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Atlanta is a city of around five, six million people. Um, throughout the metro area, in the perimeter, outside the perimeter, um, there's a lot of diversity. It, it really is a melting pot. We have a great deal of um, of wealth uh, inequality here, but that's another story for another day. And you know, we have black people, white people, uh, Indian. Like, there's Atlanta. It really is a melting pot here, and. Because it is, and it's so black, and you see black people doing so well, and you see so much upward mobility. You see all of these colleges within the city, Georgia Tech, the AUC with Spelman, Morehouse, Georgia State, right? There's a SCAD campus. You you kind of think that it's like that all over, but it's not. Once you travel around 45 minutes, north, south, east, any direction, the landscape changes drastically. Um, you know, it's, it's not uncommon, right. For somebody to go to, there's a town North Georgia, right. Called Kennesaw. It's probably 20 minutes outside of the city, 20, 30 and see hella Confederate flags. See other, um, symbols of, of hate and oppression. And that's just traveling 20, 30 minutes from (laughs) ST. I call this Wakanda, but 
Um, it, it definitely doesn't feel like that sometimes. And then just uh, earlier this week, the young man that was killed in the Wendy's parking lot fell asleep, was drunk. Okay, that's not a death sentence. Stopped up the drive through line at the Wendy's. Police were called. Ended up being shot over a taser. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the point of police using a taser on you is because it's a non-lethal weapon. You're using non-lethal force to stop someone from doing what you don't think they should be doing. And wrestling with the police at this point for black people, it, it shit, this feels like self-defense, right? And you, you know that, especially with a clear, um, clear mind and, and you can think about these things, you know that wrestling with the police could end poorly. And I'm not talking about white police. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the police in general, right? Because that's the problem. Um, and you know, that could end poorly, but anyway, so you, you have a taser, which is purposeful, non-lethal, uh, weapon of force. And if someone turns around and points that at you again, non-lethal while running away, trying to get away from you, not posing a threat. You shoot them in the back as they run away. And, and people, you know, I'm pretty sure that once that, that taser was already shot, right? Like, and I think though the tasers that the police have, I think those are, are, are are one shot tasers, right? Like they might have like multiple, uh, little lines that come out, but I'm pretty sure it's like, once you shoot it, you have to do something to reload it again. And that taser looked like it was already gone. Now I'll correct and retract this if I, if we find out otherwise, but that's what it looked like on the video. And the police shot him in the back with a line, a line of cars easily endangering others. Now that officer that, that shot him was promptly fired as he should have been, but it, it can't stop there. That can't be it. Like we, we can't even travel around our own communities. Now, Yes, it is illegal to drink and drive, but the man offered to walk. He offered to leave his keys in the car, and none of that happened. Like, he wasn't able to do any of that. Breonna Taylor didn't do anything, laying in her bed sleep. Cops bust in, don't knock warrant, just start shooting. What, what the fuck? George Floyd, which was really the catalyst for all of this, because in its... In, you know, progress really only moves at the pace at which white people are comfortable, um, which is why it is taking us so long, right, to kind of get to this point. Because when you see that George Floyd video, it really, it hurts. Now, I watched it. I A lot of people haven't. The, you, most of us have just seen the still image of, the bitch ass cop with his knee on his neck and his hands in his pockets looking so nonchalant, but I watched it and now I didn't watch all eight minutes. I got enough to basically get the gist. 
And the fact that everybody stood around while this man called out in horror for his dead mother, said he couldn't breathe, and all those cops didn't give a damn. Didn't give a damn. So when you have something like that, that and this is a video, an image that the whole world saw, and America is literally and figuratively on fire because of it, and I support it. I'll go on record right now saying I support it. Burn the whole goddamn thing down. Because when you have an institution that is inherently racist, that upon its founding wasn't built to include you, a law enforcement whose inception was racist, we know this, do your Googles on the police force. I did them a few years ago and was shocked, but not really, right, on how the police force was formed, what it came to be. And they tell us this. We know this. These things are are public. In L.A., back in around, I think it was the 50s and 60s, they went and started recruiting in the South um, for a lot of their uh, police units, like the cut of their jib. You know, they they liked how how they handled the unruly, quote, unquote. I'm doing air quotes around unruly. They wanted to keep a, a law and order in L.A., so that's why they went to the South. And when you go to the South to get police officers, that's not a subtle move. You know what you're doing. You know why you're going there. You know the type of results you'll get from that, that kind of policing. And so that's why we have now the LAPD, like the, people call the police the biggest gang in America, and the police, the police in L.A. and in New York um, – are the biggest perpetrators we see, right? But it's it's so it's so frustrating, and I don't know what the answer is. And I know, as an audience, you aren't looking to me for the answers. That's something that we have to look um, to our politicians for, right? And we purposefully don't have a lot of faith in these these politicians um, because what have they done before? What have they done before? You know, there's a clip that was circling around um, because, you know, a big part of the Biden presidency is, oh, he sponsored he, the, the 94 crime bill, 94 crime bill, 94 crime bill. You know, you have Bill Clinton on several occasions, right, calling for 100,000 new police officers, 100,000 more police officers, all these police officers in these crime riddled communities, right, over policing us taking us to jail, killing us right in our own backyards. And now 20 something years, well, not even 20 something years later, 16 years later, we, it's coming to, it's been a fever pitch. Like the, and I'm glad to see so many people, black, white, brown, all out protesting and marching because things are being changed. Things, things are happening, um, not at the pace at which we would like them to, but the progress is coming, you know, it's, it's coming. And for far too long, our, our politicians have tried to ignore us. They have tried to say, oh, well, you know, we'll get this done. Or they've tried to, oh, well, we couldn't get that done because they want, no, 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 no more excuses. No more fucking excuses. We need things to change now. 
we don't we don't have to we don't have to wait. Don't don't put us off. You know, back um, quick history lesson. So at the end of the Civil War, which was fought for slavery, not states rights. Um, don't let them feed you that bullshit. You know, Lincoln met with a couple of black leaders. Right. And. Among them, they were like, hey, you know, we're we've got these four million recently freed Africans. We need a plan to integrate them into society so they can assimilate into this American way of life. Because when Thomas Jefferson sat down and penned the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, these unalienable rights did not apply to us. But now they do, right? Amendment to end slavery, we should be fine. Lincoln said, you know, you know what? Um, I'm glad you guys came. Actually, I already talked to Congress, and we've secured funding to send you guys away because you Africans are a, a burden on us. And we know that we're a burden on you. So let's just, let's just wipe our hands, call it even, and we'll get you guys out of here. They didn't want us here from the beginning. Once chattel slavery ended, they again didn't want us to assimilate into the economies that our ancestors built. And that same mindset, those same policies um, of dividing us, because I mean, look, do your reading, do your Googles. Black ghettos don't exist out of thin air just because black people are lazy and don't want to, to work. And we love crime, uh, riddled areas. No, no, no. That's not why these areas exist. That's not why the South side of Chicago is the way it is. And so don't let them feed you that black on black bullshit. But what about Chicago? Yeah. What about Chicago? Go read a book and figure out how I got the not even read a book. Google how I got that way. So when you go to these different places and you see these pockets, these segments, right, whether it's Memphis, Atlanta, Chicago, New York, L.A., that are all black and are poverty stricken. It wasn't by accident. It was by design. But enough about that. Uh, I had to get that out of the way because it, it was weighing heavy on me. I couldn't come back and, and not talk about these things. And you know what? Not enough about that. Fuck it. We're on it. So we'll keep going. We go to these communities, right? And we have our people there and they're struggling and you know, they're trying to, work to create a better lives for themselves because I don't know where this narrative came from that people that live in these communities are just all right with that. They just wake up every day and say, well, this is how it's going to be. No, people want to get out. Um, you know, one means of getting out is athletics. You know, <laughs> you, you want to be and, you want to emulate what you see, right? So popular culture and not, not just in black areas, all, all over popular culture, athletes, entertainers, rappers, they're cool because black culture is cool and it's all over, right? You see Migos here. You see LeBron James, right? 
you know, you see Travis Scott, Lil Baby, all of them. And and when you see, and I'm particular focusing on athletes, when you see these athletes, right, they're coming out of these situations, not all black athletes, not all, because that's a narrative. Anytime there's a black athlete, when he gets drafted or, you know, when you're watching the game on Saturday or if he makes it to the NFL or if he makes it to the NBA uh, or if she makes it to the WNBA or she makes it on the LPGA or if she uh, is now uh, playing in the Australian Open or in Wimbledon. Oh, they came from this crime-infested community. They barely made it out. But for their, you know, premier athletic prowess, who knows where they would be now? And and you <laughs> and you see that just last week, right, or two weeks ago, within the past couple of weeks, you've seen this with our our college cultures because we look at college athletics and we look to the people who run it. I'm, I'm speaking on football here. Uh, we look to them and they and they have this. It's almost like a built-in white savior complex because the biggest football programs in America. D1 institutions are white schools. I mean, that's not, that's just what it is. Clemson, Florida, Florida State, USC, right? No, those, those aren't HBCUs. And the men running those programs historically have been white men. And last week, right, Clemson's coach, he had some very interesting and just downright ridiculous things to say. Um, and trying, and this is this is a trick, and I hate to sound like super hotel, but this is a trick that uh, will happen. They'll try to get you to pray the hate away, but they won't actually acknowledge where the hate is coming from. They'll get you to pray it away. Oh, you know, I'm a Christian man, so I believe that you know, as long as we repent all our sins, and well, it'll, there's nothing wrong with prayer. There's nothing wrong with repenting. There's nothing wrong with looking to whatever God you worship for insight and for guidance. But when it comes to racism, we have to be direct and we have to uh, be concise. And we also have to be uh, unwavering in what it is that we're striving for. So I say that to say when we send our young men um, and young women, but I'm talking about college football right now, we send our young men from their communities, whether that they grew up, in the hood, where they grew up in the suburbs, whether they grew up uh, anywhere else in a trailer park, it doesn't matter. When we send them to these places with these men who hold these certain ideals, again, you can believe what you want to believe, but when that then begins to trickle down the way they treat them, that's a problem. Because, you know, when we go to college, it's, I don't know about for you all, but uh, that that 18 to 22, 23 age is when we do a lot of finding ourselves. We do a lot of self-reflection. We do a lot of coming into our own. And I was never privileged enough to have to come into my own. Um, and, and not even privileged. It's you have the the burden almost of coming into your own like some of these athletes do while also being in the spotlight. They don't have room to to fuck up. They don't have room to say the wrong thing sometimes, right? Because they're under a magnifying glass, especially now with Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, whatever it is, right? Text messages, as we saw with Drake from Elite Ass uh, a couple weeks ago, right? So you don't necessarily have the room for that. 
And then when you have someone like Dabo Sweeney on top of that, wear a shirt that says football matters in the same elk as the black lives matter uh, movement, almost, almost mocking it. it. It feels so disingenuous to then send our children to these institutions for them to then become men and, and, and led by men who are, who are coming into these people's living rooms, coming into these, these kids, parents houses, and saying, I will lead them. I will take care of them. They will be a better man when they leave me. And you know, that, that just doesn't feel right. And you have Mike Gundy. Mike Gundy is the coach of Oklahoma state, Oklahoma state, pretty successful football program. Pretty good. Right. And, you know, you have him wearing, and this just came out a couple of days ago, wearing the OAN One American News Network t-shirt, right? And I had to Google what One American News was. I was not sure. Uh, and apparently that shit makes Fox News look like the Atlantic. They have got some conspiracy theories on there. Like they... It was something, I think I saw something about a non-binary penguin. Uh, it was it was wild. It was wild. Some guy talking about he couldn't go get a haircut. It was tyranny. Oppression not seen since Hitler's Germany. Hitler's Germany. Because the CDC strongly recommended we stay in our homes to not uh, catch that Rona. So these are the type of stories they're running. And this is the t-shirt this man was wearing. He's wearing this t-shirt. Which again, not illegal, not a crime. You're entitled to your own ideas. You're entitled to your own belief system, but it's tough when you are in entrenched in a belief system that diametrically opposes black people's existence and their humanity. That's tough. That's a long walk for me. And that's not, that's, that's not it. We, we can't do that because again, you are taking kids. Now these college football programs, 60, 70% black. You're taking these kids out of whatever city they come from and recruiting mostly um, for a lot of these places is regional. So a place like Oklahoma state is getting a lot of kids from the Midwest, from the South, Texas, right? Uh, Georgia, Oklahoma, like we're getting Tennessee. We're getting, they're getting a lot of kids um, out of primarily black places. Right. And you're sending them to Oklahoma state, which is nowhere. Right. And so when they're leaving their communities and going to these places, there's often a sense of being shell shocked. Michael Vick talked about that in his uh, 30 for 30 uh, that came on ESPN a few, a few months ago, getting the Virginia tech, getting to Blacksburg, Virginia, and it being the first time he was really around the amount of white people that he was, right? And it just being so foreign to him. And we don't talk enough about traveling to these college campuses and them being safe spaces for our youth. And that's why a lot of times, you know, these college locker rooms are are so divided. So I've been told by people who have played at, at higher levels, the colleges and the NFLs, because when you get to college and you come from an area uh, like South Dallas, 
you come from an area predominantly black west side of Atlanta, right? You come from uh, an area predominantly black in L.A., right? You come from an area predominantly black in Florida and Miami. You're going to gravitate to the people that make you feel the most comfortable. And once you gravitate to those people, you kind of are in your own, own little bubble. And once you're in that bubble, you know, it's fine. But then you have to go outside of it and travel around that campus. And, and traveling around that campus, if you don't feel safe or if when you're in that bubble, you're having coaches threaten to send you back to the ghetto. Oh, you going to go back to the hood. How safe are you in that space? Really? Because I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. And, and that reminds me of, you know, when I, when I first went off to college, right, which is, and, and I use college here as an example of um, the first time a lot of us, and this isn't, you know, just confined to the black people, but that's what we're talking about right now. Um, college in the military is the first time that we actually get out and have to navigate the world on our own. Um you know, without the support system that we are used to for those fortunate enough to have a support system. And for me, I went to school in a really small town in South Georgia and wasn't that far, like two and a half, three hours from where I grew up. Um, and that was for me was the first time that I was in an environment that was so very um, constructed. It didn't feel natural. Um, it was it was like it was there for me, but wasn't necessarily somewhere that was always the most welcoming. Um, and you know, part of that is you know getting outside of your your comfort zone and uh, adaptability, and you know having the ability to you know fit in uh, in all these different spaces, but. You know, when when you do that and when you go somewhere and you're trying to do that while also make friends, right, while also coming into your own, it's tough. Because these campuses, and, and of course we talk about foreign travel and, you know, domestic travel and experiencing things and having fun. These campuses, no matter how far they are from where you grew up, what you know, ideals, they're all a bit foreign. Um, because that's what makes these campuses unique, right? And going back to what we talked about with the, uh, with the coach, with whether it's Gundy or, or Sweeney or any other, um, institution where you have these, these men who are leading these young boys, predominantly black boys, when you get somewhere that's foreign, you always want to be able to have a, have a safe space, have a North star. And when you're out in the world and at some points it feels like you're alone, why in the hell would these kids want to be somewhere where the person that came into their living room, the person that told them they were going to help them become a better man, sports paraphernalia of groups that 
diametrically oppose their existence. I don't understand that. Um, and although I didn't go to an HBCU, I feel like that's why HBCU representation is so important. But hey, that's another conversation for another day. All right, so I know the last part we talked about was really, really in depth, but I felt it was necessary. Um, and just to kind of switch it up a bit from everything we've been seeing, right? It doesn't look like we're going anywhere anytime soon. Um, Americans can't keep their ass at home. We apparently social distancing isn't a thing anymore. I see y'all on Instagram. What I see y'all on snap. What, what are we doing? The parties, the, the lack of just lack of fucks given. You all out at the restaurant, ah, you know, next to each other, drinking, kicking. What are, what are we doing? This isn't going to work. You know, I, I Googled the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu is, you know, basically what they are comparing uh, this to. Because that was the last time we had a, a, a breakout, right, on a massive scale like this here in America. Um was the Spanish flu. And in reading that, the Spanish flu had like four different um, waves. The first wave was, the, you know, it was, it was deadly. It wasn't great. But the second wave is where all of the casualties came from. Um, and funny enough, that second wave came in August. So hopefully uh, at the end of August, we don't have... Um, you know, it's huge numbers of that, but they are projecting like 2 million people getting this. What? Come on now. Like that's, that's ridiculous. We got to do better. And what's happening now is, you know, a lot of companies are putting out statements like obviously because uh, this is such unprecedented and uncharted territory they're really just best guesses. So the job I have, my day job, they said no more travel until end of first quarter, beginning of second quarter, 2021. So almost a year, uh, we're going to be grounded. No travel unless it is absolutely necessary. And I'm going to tell you something. As long as there's no vaccine, no treatment, there is no damn travel that is immediately necessary for me to risk my life. Nah, nah, but it did make me nostalgic. It did make me, I, I hearken back to the days when I could go somewhere. Right. And it's like, you know, we all think back to taking our airport experience for granted, taking our travel experience uh, for granted. Can't talk. And it's like, you know, damn, is it really going to be so long before we can just go through the airport? Now I understand some people have to travel, like, you know, see family, some other stuff that that's kind of important that you, you have to do. And the airports are empty from everything that I've been seeing and hearing. And, you know, it's almost, it almost makes you, you, you want to go back. It makes you want to 
stand in that long TSA pre-check line or just a regular line. You know, you you miss when people crowd around the the boarding door even before their damn zone is called. Um, you know, you miss that one person that gets on late, right? And you've got the seat next to you that's open and you're like, fuck, I hope they don't sit here. I hope they don't sit here. I hope they don't sit here. And they come down, right, the aisle and they're kind of sweaty because they had to run from another gate. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's me right there. Fuck. I was hoping I had this middle seat open so I'd have more room to spread out. But here we are. But, you know, one thing I don't miss about traveling is kind of the the coded and overt you know kind of racism that you you face and it's not even like that that bull connor like you know it's not that it's not that deep southern jim crow because for the most part that's kind of gone now that's impolite you know we don't we don't like to do that in public anymore it's like the little subtle things right especially as a business traveler going through the airport like and you know in, in atlanta it's it's not that bad atlanta like we like we said earlier so many black people from all walks of life for like when i go into um like the airport lounge right so i'll go in there usually before my flight takes off you know get some breakfast, depending on the time of day it is, get a drink, sit down, enjoy the the nice Wi-Fi, right? Enjoy that. Check my emails, Facebook, you know, do whatever I got to do. Um, now, when I'm in other cities, sometimes cities with uh, smaller populations, uh, the, the, the thinking is a bit more narrow in some of these cities, not to, you know, Cast all people in the wide net. I'm just saying, it is what it is. You get certain looks when you're in there. It's like, hey, this guy's black, sharply dressed, might I add. What is he doing here? I wonder, is he is he an athlete? No, he's not an athlete. He's he's not that great of shape. He's not tall. Is he like a business owner? Eh. I mean, if he was doing that well, he'd be flying private. Who is he? Why is he in here? Did he get a day pass? I mean, anybody can get a day pass. How does he afford it? And I'm here to tell you, like, I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination or measure, like, at all. But these are the looks you get. Like, why are you in our space? Space that they prioritize as their own. They've commandeered as this is my space. And it, <laughs> so quick story. I, I was in Florida for work. This is 2013 uh, down in um, West Palm Beach. And the team I was on, I was the only black person. It was a mm, relatively small team. 10, 15 people. Um, now we did have people of color, but I was the only black person. So once a week, once every other week, um, the executive that, that led that engagement would say, Hey, let's go out for a team dinner. He's paying 
it'd always be somewhere pretty nice, right? And West Palm Beach, a lot of nice restaurants. So I remember this one particular night, we go to a restaurant and there is a valet. You can't park your car. It's, it's only a valet. It's right on the water. Beautiful spot, right? Nice tables on the deck overlook. You know, we got there right as the sun was going down. Uh, it was a vibe. It was a vibe. So, you know, we pull up, get there, hop out, and I drove. Uh, I had a rental car, so I drove up there, and I was the first person there. So I get there, I go to the host stand, and I say, hey, you know, I'm here, party of whatever. It's under this guy's name. They're like, oh, it seems like you're the first person here, and we don't have the table ready yet. Give us, you know, X amount of minutes and it'll be fine. Now, the whole stand in this restaurant, it's it's kind of tight. Like, there's not a lot of room for me to just kind of stand there off to the side and wait because people are coming in and out, and it's busy. So, in order not to kind of just be in the way, I go stand outside. Now, outside, to get into this restaurant, so let me, let me, let me set the, let me set the table here to go into the restaurant. It's like the restaurant is set in like a cul-de-sac kind of thing. And, uh, that cul-de-sac, basically that turnaround is where the valet stand is. Right. And you get out of your car, you hand the valet the keys, you walk up a flight of stairs, short flight of stairs, 10, 12 steps. And there's a very small like porch and then a door to get in and out of the restaurant. So come out, standing on the porch for a while, porch kind of gets crowded. So I just walk down the steps and kind of stand there. So I'm there. I'm on my phone. I'm minding my business. A couple of my team members come up. Uh, we're waiting. They're standing. They start talking to each other. Just, you know, casual. And God pulls up, gets out of his car, tosses me the key. As if I'm the valet. Now, granted, we're in, again, I tell you, we're in South Florida. And most of you all have valeted your car before. Valets normally all have on a damn uniform. Now, <laughs> gone are the days when the valet is, you know, in the bow tie, in the vest, and long pants. Normally they're in like khaki pants or shorts. They've got like a red jacket or some type of like polo short because they be moving. Shout out to all the uh, valets or people who have valet before. They be moving. They run to get your car. They run back. They're, they're always on the go. So the guy tosses me the key, like literally he doesn't hand me the key. He gets out for some reason we make eye contact and he like tosses me the key. It's a pretty nice car. Should have took off in that shit. And, uh, I threw, I didn't toss it. I overhand threw it right back at him. I'm not the valet. The look he gave me of disgust. The look he gave me of disgust. Like, Oh, you're not the, he didn't even say, I'm sorry. He just looked at me disgusted. And then the valet saw it and was like, oh, right here, sir. I've got you. Now, needless to say, it was pretty light in this establishment. One too many dark spots. By, and by many, I mean, I don't think there were any. So, okay, cool. Kind of brush it off. Was a little upset. We sit down at our table. You know, we got a nice little setup outside. The sun has gone down by this point, you know, but you can still kind of see the ocean waves crashing, you know, the, the, the birds, you can see kind of some boats off in the distance. 
Uh, there are a couple other restaurants around like that beach area setting off a nice lighting situation. Again, vibes. Everything's beautiful. We're talking, laughing. Food is delicious. I remember they had really good breadsticks. I don't remember the name of the place. I wouldn't shout them out if I did. But good food. Delicious breadsticks. Get up to go to the bathroom. Walk into the bathroom. Walk into the bathroom. And a woman reaches back behind herself, like leans back and touches my arm. Excuse me, holds her water glass up. Can we get some more water over here? Need some water. It's kind of parched. Need some water. Can we get some water? You guys need anything else? Just water? Yeah, can we get some water? Man, I'm not a fucking waiter. Nor am I dressed like a goddamn waiter. Because see, at restaurants that are that are fine, restaurants that are nice, hell, even at the damn Cheesecake Factory, they all dress the same. Same goes here. McDonald's, they all dressed the damn same. I have on navy pants and a dress shirt. Sleeves rolled up. Everybody else in the restaurant that works there has on like a little suit with a jacket. I don't have on a suit. Nor do I have a damn apron on. So why in the hell would you think I could get you some water? Things I don't miss. Things I'm not going to miss about about business travel. But, again, great breadsticks at this restaurant. Food was delicious. Don't remember what I got. Remember it was really good. And, you know, it kind of goes to, um, to a larger issue for me in that When we aren't in certain spaces, when our faces aren't seen in certain spaces or are only seen in certain capacities, people make assumptions. There aren't a lot of black people at this restaurant. There's one standing near the valet stand, so he must be the valet. Oh, there aren't a lot of black people in this restaurant, but there's one walking by. He must be the waiter. So let me get some water from him. Representation matters. And, and, and when we say representation matters, it, not in the way that, you know, a lot of brands now are kicking it because they put, they put out the black square on Instagram. They're saying black lives matter. They're giving employees Juneteenth off. Great. Why don't you all have any black people around like in leadership aside from diversity and inclusion? Cause they love to give us that. Oh, they love to put a black person, man or woman in the diversity and inclusion spot. That's their shit right there. No, 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 no. We're diverse. We have someone here making sure that, you know, the vendors we select are minority and veteran and, you know, women owned. We, we're taking care of that. We've got that. We've got Lisa here. Lisa, Lisa's here. She's doing that. Go to the brunches. What are you talking about? No, no, no. When you look at the, the executive boards, and I, and I say representation matters. The executive boards of a lot of these companies, Lily white, Lily damn white. So I did a fun exercise when I was thinking about this. I went on the computer and I looked up, you know, a couple of companies that we hold near and dear to our heart when it comes to travel, some airlines, a couple of hotels. I said, Hey, 
these places are telling us black lives matter. When you look at their social media, a good mix, right? Like you, you, you see black pilots, black women pilots, you know, you go to these places, the hotel managers are, are, are black, but like, how do they feel about us as an executive level? So I took a look and I looked at Delta. Nobody, no black executives. Okay. No black executives. Okay. Wasn't too shocked. So then I looked at uh, Southwest airline. None. All right. None. Okay. American airlines. Nah, nah, no, neither there. Okay. We still got United. I mean, their name is United. So they have to unite the races in the boardroom. They have to. Lo and behold, one black president there, Bret Hart. I was like, oh, that's, that's dope. But Bret, I'm not going to lie to you. And shout out to Bret if you ever hear this. Bret a little light-skinned. So I didn't know if, you know, I saw the hair texture. The hair texture always gives it away. I saw the hair texture. And I was like, you know, let me Google Bret just, you know, before I come on the podcast to give some misinformation. Let me Google Bret. Google Bret. Sure enough, black. Take a guess when Brett was elected or appointed president at United. Two weeks ago. Now, I'm sure Brett has all the qualifications necessary to do an outstanding job in his position. But he was promoted because of what happened. Now, I guess, you know, how we get there to an extent doesn't matter as long as we are in the room. But unless George Floyd gets a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, Brett does not get that position today or two weeks ago. He probably doesn't. He probably doesn't. So that tells me that a lot of this stuff is disingenuous. It's, It's for show. These companies are, they have to do better. And, and when you look at the, the, the heads of there, because, you know, a lot of the times the executive committee, the, the C-suite, we've got our CEO, CFO, CIO, and then it branches down, global head, president, vice president, head of EMEA, head of APAC, head of North America, head of Latin America. All those guys are white. Damn, you couldn't even get an Asian person to be the head of APAC? You know, Marriott has over 7,000 properties worldwide. They're the biggest hotel chain in the world, right? Everybody loves Marriott. It's name recognition. It's like Pepsi. Everybody knows it. Zero black people on their executive team. They do have two black people on the board of directors. The board of directors is not, you know, it's not a figurehead position. It matters. So shout out to them. But Hilton, none. None. So these brands that we're loyal to for the hotel points, the quality of service and level of service that we've come to expect, right? The sky miles, the benefits, they will with no hesitation, take our money. None. But how does that, I don't get, how does that reciprocate? Now there's some math there. The math checks, 
if you live in a place that is, I suppose, a melting pot like the U.S. does, why don't the largest travel companies, and again, travel and hospitality, you're not always traveling to places where the population is homogenous. Everybody isn't going to look the same. Marriott is a global brand. It's not just in the U.S. Delta is a global brand. They fly all over the world. United flies all over the world. American flies all over the world. Then how the hell does the executive committee only look a certain way at all these places? Excuse me, except for United less two weeks ago. I don't know. So it's going to suck to travel once stuff does get back to normal. Let's say we do get the, you know, Fauci's right um, and we get a vaccine or we get a viable treatment by first quarter next year. Uh, it takes about, you know, a few months. And I'm spitballing here. It takes a few months for everybody who's going to get it to get it. And we're back to normal. Like, I feel like air travel is going to suck. It is going to be trash. So many people getting back into the routine. So many people. <laughs> and I've seen the joke go around um, Twitter and Instagram. Like there needs to be two lines at the airport, two airports. People who have been to the airport before and people who have never been to a fucking airport in their life. That is going to be exacerbated by the time we start getting back into this air travel. Line's going to be out the door. Like in... And for those of you who do get around a lot, you know, back when we could go places freely, people already kind of have an attitude with TSA a little bit. Have some patience with them. Have some patience with, you know, the flight attendants, the pilots, the people that work in the airport. Like, this is going to suck. The social distancing, you know, the they're talking about, like, only flying at, you know, two-thirds of capacity for some of these airlines. So, I guess that reflects itself in ticket prices. It's we, we will not have seen a travel overhaul like this since nine 11. Um, you know, the most tragic act of, uh, foreign terrorism. Cause we've had a lot of domestic terrorism. Stay woke, uh, foreign terrorism in the U S since Pearl Harbor. And now COVID it's kind of taking this place um, with how our travel is going to change. Like we had to think about it after nine 11, <laughs> the biggest change aside from stuff you can pack is, Oh, we got to take your shoes off. Excuse me, sir. You got to take your shoes off. The rock ports are going off. Take, please take those off. Who knows what the hell we're going to have to do now. Do we have to go and get like, get sprayed with some shit? Like how do how is boarding gonna work? Somebody, how is boarding working with social distancing? Because boarding is always a clusterfuck. How do you get off the plane? Because there's no how can you social distance getting off the plane? How long are we gonna be required to wear masks? Because remember, not everybody is going to get the vaccine. Some people don't trust the vaccine. Some people don't want it. They don't think it's gonna work. How are we gonna do this? I mean, I don't have the answers. But I know y'all better stay far as hell away from me. And I'm staying far as hell away from y'all until this vaccine comes out. See, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. 
I I understand, especially why people of color are are hesitant um, about taking vaccines. If you don't understand that, take a little trip over to your Google machine and and look up the uh, Tuskegee experiment, Tuskegee project. But like with this one, and and somebody please help me out here if I'm missing something. What would be the incentive to give a like mind control chip like vaccine? Like what is the worst conspiracy theory? What what is the what is the incentive for the conspiracy theory in the vaccine? Like they're gonna give me that shit, it might kill me. Mm. Well, Chuck, who Barely passed uh, 11th grade biology. The people who uh, who make these uh, who make these vaccines, I think they got it figured out. Well, the people who get flu vaccines, they don't they get the flu sometimes. True, um, but but they also don't die from it, so that's a thing. Uh, we we don't want to die from it. And by all accounts, this COVID shit, it really seems like an awful way to go. Awful way to go. Um, I don't know how I will go, but I know laying on my bed in a hospital, super swollen, lungs full of fluid, thick ass blood. That's not it. That's not the way I want to get out of here. You know, if a fortune teller told me that 10 years ago, I'd be so disappointed. At least give me some on brand, like, you know, kayaking through, you know, Patagonia. And there was a tragic, you know, alpaca accident or something, something, something that I can believe something that I can, you know, Evan's not here anymore, but God damn it. He went out like he, he wanted to, but anyway, Welcome to season two. Check out the YouTube channel. Subscribe, rate, review the podcast. Follow on all social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, all of that. And I'll talk to you guys later. Stay safe. Cover your mouth. Don't go to any parties. Don't be stupid. Why, 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 why